sharing is how we erase the stigma of overcoming infertility. And so uh, I hope that everyone listening will at some point be willing to also share their story with others Mm -hmm. um, so that others don't feel any shame or they don't have any bad feelings about that experience. Whoever thought making a baby could be so hard? Luckily, the fertility journey isn't meant to be traveled alone. Eloise Drain has helped hundreds of people build and grow their families over the last 15 years, and she's ready to share her insider knowledge and expertise with you. So grab a seat and let's talk fertility and alternative family building in the Fertility Cafe. Welcome to Fertility Cafe. People often say that infertility is a family affair, not just affecting the person or couple experiencing infertility, but the extended family of parents and siblings and even close friends who join you on your infertility journey. Our guest today can attest to this firsthand. In 2004, Dr. Camille Hammond's own mother, who was 55 years old at the time, served as a gestational carrier for Camille and her husband, Jason, carrying and giving birth to three healthy babies. Triplets. Yeah. Okay? It was through Camille's own journey with infertility and the strength and perseverance she developed to overcome the diagnosis that she became an advocate. After an extraordinary medical journey gave Camille and her husband, Jason, two boys and a girl, the couple decided to give back and help others still going through infertility. They started the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation, which to date has awarded 92 families with grants of up to $10,000. Dr. Camille Hammond is the CEO of the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation. She is an expert on infertility education, advocacy, and support. She has been published in the peer-reviewed scientific literature and in newspapers and magazines. She and her work have been featured on television, news, and testified to legislators on Capitol Hill about infertility-related legislation. She has also served as a keynote speaker and presented at scientific conferences and other programs. Through her work at the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation, she has hosted hundreds of education conferences for families sharing about different ways to become a parent and overcome infertility. Dr. Hammond is the author of several books, including The Good Book About Infertility and The Good Book About Faith and Fertility. She is also the owner of the publishing house Good Books About Tough Topics. Let's welcome Dr. Hammond. Thank you for joining us on the Fertility Cafe today, Camille. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be a part of this uh, network and to to be on the cafe with for breakfast. Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) So you've told your story many times over the years, but I'd love for you to share it with one more time with our listeners who may not be familiar with your journey up until this point. Happy to share. Uh, I think sharing is how we erase the stigma of overcoming infertility. And so uh, I hope that everyone listening will at some point be willing to also share their story with others Mm -hmm. um, so that others don't feel any shame or they don't have any bad feelings about that experience. So my story started about 20 years ago. I met the love of my life in 1997, my first week of medical school. And after what I would consider a two-year fairy tale courtship, we decided that where well, he asked me to marry him, 
And a year later, we got married and we started working to build our family on our wedding night because I knew I had endometriosis and that that may make it hard for me to get pregnant. So a year later, after we had not conceived, we started seeing a fertility doctor and, you know, went through five, six rounds of IVF over the next few years and did not want to get pregnant. And remember, this is at a time, like, kind of before you had a lot of celebrities that were talking about infertility and, and getting treatment. Right. Um, they were talking about we had acupuncture at 50 years old and ended up with twins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, kind of we all suspected that there was acupuncture, but there was also a little bit of uh, perhaps donor egg or perhaps IVF. You know, they weren't doing that. So we we definitely felt like purple unicorns. I did not see anyone who I could identify with that had acknowledged they had infertility. And after six failed rounds of IVF, not only did I have infertility, my doctor suggested that we should go and consider adoption or a gestational carrier. And and I really didn't know about anybody who was talking about, um, any, any African Americans who were talking about having worked with another person to carry their baby. So um, we were devastated, but we told my parents and my husband's parents because they were some of the only people we felt like we could share our journey with. And my mom asked if she could carry a baby for us because she had seen a story on the news when I was 18 years old and first diagnosed with endometriosis. And she thought, she and my dad thought it might be something that could work. Now, you know, my parents were in their 50s. They were 54 at the time. And my mom was posing a bottle. And I thought that you had to be at least, you know, um, having normal menses. I, I thought that you had to be of reproductive age in order to carry a baby. And so did my husband. So we politely declined uh, their invitation. Uh, but my parents were persistent. They were, they had faith for us at that period because we were really just broken uh, financially, emotionally, spiritually. Um, but they believed for us. And after kind of gentle prodding, we decided to pray about it and talk about it. And, um, you know, ultimately decided to see if the doctors would clear my mom to do this. They, they said that she was older, but she was in good shape. She was healthy. And she had um, had three successful pregnancies. She carried myself and my siblings. And they, they said, well, we don't think it'll kill her, but uh, she, she probably get pregnant, which, of course, was not um, reassuring. But in faith, we moved forward. And about a year later, she delivered my triplets, healthy, mm. beautiful, perfect triplets that were born at 32 weeks. Oh, so, my God. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So she was 55 years old, and she delivered her grandbabies. You know, about a year later, we decided to start a resource, the Kate Foundation, that would help other families going through infertility. We, Our initial goal was really just to raise enough money to give one family $10,000. My husband and I are both physicians. We were both working, um, you know, in a hospital setting, but we wanted to give back. And that goal of giving back to one family has evolved to the point where uh, through the Cade Foundation, the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation, named after my mother, uh, we have supported 121 families and given back about a million dollars worth of fertility and adoption support uh, to families throughout the country. And in addition to the financial piece, 
we also hold conferences um, that share about pathways to parenthood and, and that provide support to families that are walking this infertility journey because we do believe that infertility should not be a barrier to anyone. And if, if you have a heart to love and care for and raise a child, you should have that opportunity. Wow. Okay. So my, my head is flooded with questions right now <laughs> about how oh, wow. all of this has like transpired. So bear with me as I like make sure that I can contain my excitement because I don't know, this, this stuff just, it just does something inside of me every time, you know, you hear these amazing stories and yours truly obviously is very amazing. So during the whole process, I mean, how did it actually feel having your mom be the one to carry your babies for you? And then did you guys go in with the intention of transferring three embryos? No. Well, okay. So question one, I certainly didn't dream about my mother carrying my babies when I was six years old, thinking about what my life would look like when I was a grown-up. That's not something that I would have ever imagined was even possible. Up to the point where my parents asked if my mom could carry a baby for us, that's just not something that ever crossed my radar. But I can't think of anyone else who would have been a better person to do that. I mean, it was certainly an act of love because, as we both know, pregnancy is not a benign activity. I mean, people, you know, get sick, they die. Everything doesn't always work out the way we want it to for pregnancy. But my mom carried me, and she raised my mom and dad had raised me, and so I knew that they would pregnancy. You know, they they would do the things that we asked, and that they would approach it you know, with us in mind. So my, and my mom would actually say that she just loved her child. She wouldn't say that she would say she's not a hero, even though she is my hero and she's always been my hero. She would say she saw her daughter hurting and she did what she could mm-hmm. to help. Um, really, really grateful for what she did. What about the triplets and being able, did you guys purposely transfer the three embryos? Uh, Yes, so we did transfer three because, again, I had gone through six rounds of IVF prior to this. And I always transferred three because that's all we had. You know, basically, we transferred the three embryos hoping that we would get one baby. You know, again, we had never had uh, success in it prior to that point. So I was just hoping that of the three, one of the embryos would be strong enough, high quality enough, you know, whatever enough mm-hmm. so that we could have a baby. But when we were told it was going to be three, I was completely overwhelmed and surprising, grateful. So, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, and it obviously it's not common for someone who's 55 to be a gestational carrier for many people at all. As a matter of fact, ASRM has the cutoff at 45 years old. So what advice would you give listeners who may have just received news that their only option for having a baby is via surrogacy? And, um, and, and how, how did you wrap your head around parenthood via surrogacy? And, you know, I mean, what, what would you, what advice would you give to someone wanting to get started? So I think that you have to start with the question of what's most important. You know, when you have been in this 
infertility world, at least for a little bit of time, you know, you kind of have to get beyond the, it's going to all work out and, you know, give my, give me a month or two and it'll, it'll happen the old fashioned way. But along with kind of moving beyond those hopes and expectations, sometimes you have to move beyond the expectation of what am I going to look like when I'm pregnant? Am I going to have these morning cravings? You know, when I'm off with the baby afterwards, how am I going to heal? Like those things that some of your friends who don't struggle with infertility may think about, those are expectations that you're going to have to part with and you have to mourn those. So the question that I had to ask myself when we got to the whole conversation about it's not going to probably work for me to get pregnant. And what's most important? Am I going to continue to pursue pregnancy or am I going to pursue parenthood? Because those can be the same questions, but they can be very different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had continued to pursue pregnancy on my own, I may not be a parent right now because what I found out later after my kids were born, is I not only had endometriosis, I also had adenomyosis. So I really had no uterine lining. Everything, you know, I I had no uterine lining. So it would have been virtually impossible for an embryo to, to implant. You know, so by making the decision, and this is something I, a decision I made with my husband, it certainly wasn't just me, but we decided we wanted to be parents. And that um, if our kid... We were hoping for one child, but if our kid or our children came through another pathway to parenthood, that we were okay with that. That that was a decision that had to be made ahead of time. I certainly don't encourage anybody to make that type of decision out of desperation or on the fly because you don't want to be regretful down the road um, and, and kind of feel some kind of way and not treat that child uh, that was waited for and prayed for any with any other anything other than the love and care that that child deserves. Hmm. So uh, we were grateful, but we we had kind of made our decision and, and chosen a pathway, and we were comfortable with that from the start. Yep, yep. I mean, obviously, you have the foundation, and you talk to a lot of people that are dealing with infertility and who potentially also might be needing to use a gestational carrier or should I say work with a gestational carrier? Is it common that you see people, well, you know, your mom carried at 55, maybe my mom can carry for me as well. And have all of these people coming out of the woodworks and saying, hey, I'm willing to do the same for my child. Um, have, have you seen that? And is that something that's actually common? Common, but there are certainly people who have reached out to my mom, who I would add um, is connected with the Cade Foundation as a member of the Board of Trustees, but she does not run Cade and she's not involved at all with the day-to-day activity of the foundation. So people have reached out to her to say that this was something that they wanted to do. And, you know, she has shared her experience. Um, but I think that what the example did was just Put a face to infertility and let people know that this is something that if they can overcome, you can overcome as well. So no matter how bad or hopeless your situation looks, you know, there is a pathway for you. It may not be the pathway for your best friend or for your sibling or the one that you had imagined, uh, but there is a way to become a parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So many couples struggle with determining when and how to tell their children that they were born via surrogate or through donor eggs or sperm or what have you. And your story was so public with news stories and interviews. How did you tell your children the story of their birth? And were you open about it from the beginning? Or was it something that they found out through the news or a Google search? You know, I'm sure now they're teenagers. So how did you share your story with them? We felt like there was no shame in our kids' story. This is a story of hope. This is a story of overcoming. And so we shared our story with the kids precognition. When we talked to them and shared bedtime stories, included in those bedtime stories were a story about our experience, the pictures of my mom pregnant, um, you know, were the truth about how their dad and myself felt about wanting to be a parent and how we had been praying for them and waiting for them for many, many years. And, you know, we just, we could not get pregnant. And when it finally happened because their granny carried them, um, it was such a blessing for all of us, not just their dad and me, but for their parents, their grandparents on both sides of the family. They were the first and are still the only on my husband's side of the family. My sister and my and my sister-in-law and my friends and like there's all these people who have been praying with us and who are part of our village right now. And so when they came, the way that they came, it was a celebration. It was nothing to be ashamed of. Mm, I love that. Yeah, we did that. They were probably two uh, when we first started telling the story. And so when they went to kindergarten. They actually asked some of their friends, well, did your granny carry you too? Because it was just such a part of their story. And, it, you know, for them, it's natural. It, it's what, it's their birth story. And it's no less valid or important as another person's story who may have been conceived or come to their family a different way. I absolutely love that. And actually, something similar happened with the second surrogacy journey that I did. And the intended mother was very open with her son about how he was, you know, brought into the world. And I had went over there one year for his brother's birthday party. And unbeknownst to me, when I got there, he grabbed me by the hand and was taking me around to all his friends and introducing me as um, Auntie L. And I didn't know at the time, but all of his friends from school actually already knew who I was and that I was his sorrow mom. And it completely just took me aback, which, and, but it was absolutely beautiful. And, you know, and I'm still Auntie L to this day, which I absolutely love. So, um, Amen. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. I, I wanted to, because you also wrote a book about faith and fertility, and I wanted to get your perspective on just that, faith and fertility and someone who is going through a hard time and believing that, you know, maybe this just wasn't what God intended for me, or this wasn't something that um, it's going to happen for me, or that, you know, if it was really supposed to be for me, then I wouldn't be going through infertility, or I wouldn't have to utilize, um, you know, a different means to be able to have a, a child. What do you say to that? So I think that uh, many people who have never experienced infertility may have kind of uh, preconceived ideas about what it is. I know that for 
a long time, I felt like I was less than, like I was being punished because of something that I didn't know that I had done. And I felt like God was angry at me. And what I really came to understand as I lived in this world a little bit longer, this family building world was, God wasn't angry at me because infertility is not a moral issue. It's a medical issue. Nobody feels like they're being punished when they get diabetes Mm. or high cholesterol or any other disease. They just say, okay, it's medical. Let me go talk to my doctor. Let me see what I can do, whether it be lifestyle or medication or surgical. You know, they, they approach those diseases differently than they approach infertility. But infertility is a medical condition that is caused by the CDC definition is not getting pregnant after 12 months of unprotected sex. It could be caused by egg problems. It could be caused by sperm problems. You may be having intercourse at the wrong time of the month because you only really have 18 hours where sex actually counts. Otherwise, it's fun. But you can't get pregnant all month long. So if you're not actually you know, trying to get conceived at the right point. It could just be timing. You know, it, it could be implantation. I mean, there's so many different medical causes where, you know, you're looking at it and, and calling it something else when, when it really does have a medical diagnosis. So that's number one. Number two, when you talk about the Bible, it talks about uh, Mary getting pregnant, you know, through, through uh, non-physical means. Well, you know, you can do that today with IVF. I'm not really trying to get into a spiritual discussion, but you don't have to actually have sex to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And we know that through the different types of uh, fertility treatments that are available. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage them, if their leaders are telling them, you know, that it's wrong, that they need to look at the words themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it talks about infertility being wrong. Mm -hmm. And... uh, if their leaders don't understand or they've never really looked at infertility, sometimes out of fear, um, people can say, well, it's wrong. It's bad. Yeah, they said that about cancer treatment back in the day. You know, nobody talked about getting treatment for cancer. They, they would whisper it, and they thought that you could catch it by touching folks. But now, as, as knowledge has improved and people, you know, have learned more, they understand, no, this is, this is not something you can catch by touching people. There are treatments available. And actually, these, these people who struggle with this deserve our support, not our condemnation. I think as our faith leaders learn more, many of them um, are providing better care and counsel to families instead of just saying, don't do it, it's bad, it's not of God, because that's nowhere in the Bible. Like, that's not biblical. That's your opinion. And mm-hmm. opinions are important, but... You know, someone wise told me they're like, but everybody's got one. Um, so you've got to learn to separate opinions from what the Bible says and, you know, from what your perspective is. Because you may feel like, you know, your perspective is different than that of your pastor and, and also that of your grandma and that of your mama. You know, if you've got family members that are saying, hey, none of, we never struggled with this. And that's not something that's family. And then you are not getting the care and the counsel from professionals because of something grandma said, you know, well, you know, was grandma having babies at 16 and 17 years old and you're 45 and you're, you're looking at y'all as being the same. Well, that's different. You know, even if grandma was having babies at 20, 
Those are 20-year-old eggs. And you're 45, you don't have the same eggs at 45 that she did at 20 years old. We're doing things differently than they did them um, kind of back in the day when many of our relatives were having children. So, you know, love your family, love your, love your leaders. Certainly get counsel, get support. But if they don't understand it and they're giving you advice, it's not based on anything but their opinion, I would be careful in following that advice. Just like you wouldn't go to a baker who handles eggs in the kitchen and say, can you talk to me about eggs? Well, yeah, they're handling eggs, but those are chicken eggs. Mm-hmm. You know, those are people eggs. And so they may be giving you the best advice that they have, but their their place is in the kitchen. They don't know a lot about human eggs. And, and so even the best that they have may not really be applicable. Got it. Got it. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for that information. Um, So let's kind of switch gears and start talking about the Cade Foundation, because I know that, like you said, it has helped so many people and there are so many people who are still in need, for sure. So what was the most important thing to you when you started the Cade Foundation and determining the community of the that the foundation would serve? Well, uh, my... Husband and I, and I want to give him credit because he's the co-founder, Dr. Jason Hammond. And so we started it really with the hope of supporting one family. We wanted to raise $10,000, and no one would give us any money until we started a profit. And so we filed the paperwork on our own. We didn't have any money. We we were, you know, poor uh, residents at that point. And so, you know, I, I really filled out all the paperwork and, submitted it and went back and forth with the IRS until we got that established. So, you know, we, we started it so that we could just raise 10000 to give to one family, and then we felt like we would have passed our blessing forward. But immediately, we got so much support, and it came from unexpected places. We have a very small article written buried in the heart of a local newspaper, and someone would give us $10,000 because they saw that and that story pricked their heart. Maybe they were, they had struggled with infertility. Um, and we just had so many people who our story resonated with and who really just locked arms with us and partnered with us that we, we thought this may be something that, you know, really can serve a, a larger purpose. And so after a few years of running Cade very part-time as we were raising children and, and kind of going about our life, Lives, I left my job in the hospital setting and transitioned to running Kate Foundation full time. My husband is still an orthopedic surgeon. Um, but, you know, after a couple of years of just having doors open and right when we thought, okay, you know, we're giving up, we're discouraged, something huge would happen and come out of nowhere. And uh, as a family, we just decided this is something we're going to invest in. And, you know, that's how that happened. We named it after my mom because. What she gave us by carrying our children was, of course, God, all blessings come from God. But through her, we became parents. So it was the gift of parenthood. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, this is what we want to give other people. We want to be, you know, ambassadors of hope and encouragement. And we want to help people realize that gift of parenthood. Although we didn't want to tell people how they should build their families because, you know, we took a traditional pathway, and if other people chose traditional or non-traditional, we thought that each family should be able to make that decision for themselves. So we we fund any pathway to parenthood 
uh, for families that have infertility. Would you mind walking us through the application process and what you look for in the application and how you determine who receives the grants? Yes. So the application is online 24-7, and it's available at cagefoundation.org under the Grants tab. We have several grants available. Um, the grants that are restricted to certain clinics were provided by families who had had success at those clinics, and they asked that those grants, those monies be available only to people from their clinics. But we have the main Case Foundation Family Building Grant. It's available 24-7 online, and it includes questions to the family or the individual who is applying. It asks about your background, your medical history, how long you've struggled with infertility, how much money you have already spent on fertility treatment. We ask about how you use your money. Because what we've seen over the years is many people who apply for grants could actually afford the treatment over, you know, one year or two years if they modify the way that they spent their money. Um, sometimes you have people who make more than enough to have saved, but, you know, they're using all their extra money on eating out and entertainment instead of saving it. So we asked, we asked about their financial picture just to see how people are using their money to decay resources, not unlimited. And, you know, we want to make sure we award families who actually have a demonstrated financial need. That doesn't mean that we exclude people who make over a certain amount of money because we want to make sure we see the full picture. If you make a higher income, but you're caring for elderly relatives or, you know, you've got expenses associated with some other, what we would consider worthy cause, then we don't want to penalize you. But at the same time, you know, we want to see everything. So we do ask about your your monthly budget. And we ask about a grant budget. And that's important because this money is really for people who have thought through how they're going to use it. It's only available for 364 days. And that means you can't be thinking of what your plan is um, after the fact. We're not going to tell you how to use the money. You've got to come to us with a fully baked plan on this is what you plan to do with it because one year is really not a lot of time in the fertility world. Those people who say, well, we'll use it however you want us to use it. We'll adopt. We'll have fertility treatment. You tell us what to do. Those applications are disqualified because that's not our job. Our job is to evaluate based on the information that you have presented. We want people who are ready to go immediately or they would be ready to go within a year of receiving the grant. You also need to talk to your doctor about your plan before you submit it. If you are saying that you want to use a grant to have IVF with your own eggs, but your doctor is saying it's unlikely that this person would conceive using their own eggs, we do have a medical advisory committee that looks at those doctor's notes, that looks at your, your lab data. And if they and if they come back and say, you know, this person's doctor said that this plan that they've come up with is not likely to be successful, your application is not going to be scored as well. So talk to your doctor before you submit your application and submit it, but be specific about what your plan is. One other thing I'd add is don't submit a plan that is unclear, i.e., let's say you're planning to have donor egg, and the cost of your a donor egg and IVF cycle is $30,000. Don't say, we're going to use the grant, and then we will 
save the other $20,000. Because if we look at your financial picture and you haven't shown evidence that you can save $20,000 outside of your expenses in that one year that you get the grant, there's no reason for the reviewers to say they're going to now miraculously be able to set aside $20,000 in savings because they got this grant. Right. We don't want the grants to go unused. We don't want them to be wasted. So be specific and be realistic. If you're saying we're going to take out loans, then you need to have proof that you have the ability to get, to get those loans so that if we if the Cage Foundation grant is awarded, you'd be able to move forward quickly. So what can the the monies that is provided by the foundation, what could it be utilized for? Any pathway to parenthood that is legal and goes through an accredited uh, agency or clinic in the U.S. So IVF, I, uh, uh, in vitro fertilization, IUI or intrauterine insemination, donor egg, donor sperm, gestational carrier, adoption. You could do familial adoption. You could do, you know, private adoption through foster care, which is the public system, or private adoption through a public agency. Embryo donation, you know, we really will find any of those pathways, but it's got to go through a domestic accredited agency. So you wouldn't be able to say, I'm going to do embryo donation from uh, South America because we just don't, we don't function internationally. Work is really domestic and we have no way of really verifying that the work is being done. Another thing that's important about Cade is we only give money out to providers. We're not going to send you a check. And that means if you're getting your work done in India, we have no way of really communicating and verifying that the work was done with the doctors over there. So we've got to be able to communicate. And that's just because our commitment is to being good stewards over the money that was given to Kate Foundation, and we want to make sure that we're sending it, and we can verify that it's being used the way that you described you you intended to use it um, in your original application. Got it. So obviously, in order for you to have a successful foundation, you need to have sponsors or you need to have donors. And can you share what some of the creative ways that you've been able to raise funds for the Kate Foundation? You know, whether you have events or do you have other ways that you guys help to raise those funds? We're so grateful for all of our partner organizations because it would it would be impossible for us to do the work that we do without their financial stewardship. Most of our events, we don't actually make a lot of money off of ticket sales. So our profit, our revenue really does come from um, those organizations to help underwrite the event. Uh, we've got the Race for the Family that's coming up in June. And for anyone who may be unable to come out um, to the Inner Harbor uh, and race with us, we do have a virtual option so that you could register. You could get your shirt and your medal and everything mailed to you. And we are going to be awarding a free IVF cycle that was donated by Shady Grove Fertility and medications for one cycle that were provided by EMD Serono. And those are going to be uh, given out to one person or two people who to two people to register it, uh, for the race for the family. So the race for the family is June the 13th at the Maryland Inner Harbor, and you can get more information at racefortheefamily.com. We also have events coming up in the Livermore, right out of the San Francisco area, 
uh, right out of, right outside of San Francisco in California on August the 29th. That's called Pork Fouquet. We've got one coming up in and it's, a, it's a vineyard and a winery. We've got a Cork Fouquet coming up uh, in Frederick, Maryland on uh, October the 10th. And, you know, the Cork Fouquet are wine tasting events, but they're also important fundraisers. And they're a lot of fun. We have live music and entertainment and paint and sip and, you know, lots of things to keep you entertained. But the goal is really to just... Um, to raise funds and also to, to support families with infertility. And then our last major fundraiser of the year is our gala and Danae in Blue, which is, or Lay Danae Blue, which is uh, a really fun night out uh, where you can get dressed up and we'll, we'll have some nationally recognized performers and we'll, we'll celebrate, um, but we'll also be able to raise money for our family building grants. Awesome. So are there any application deadlines that the listeners should be aware of? Yes. So uh, the next deadline for the Family Building Grant, which again is available at CADE, C-A-D-E, foundation.org, under the Grants tab, the next deadline for that is July the 1st. So you have plenty of time, if you're listening to this uh, before that point, to go online, get the information, your doctor will have to fill out a very short survey about you, about your medical history, and you can actually just send your doctor the link, and they would fill it out online. So there's nothing to mail in to us. And, again, this is perfect timing if you're thinking about your next step in, in terms of building your family. You know, you've got plenty of time between now and July 1st. Awesome. Well, Camille, it's been, like, eye-opening, and I, I'm just – I'm excited to actually have talked to you and to get to hear your story. Is there anything that you wanted to share with our listeners that we haven't actually talked about? Or is there any advice that you would like to give to the listeners? I have one parting word of advice. Don't give up. Mm. Things are, you know, we're, we're dealing with an unprecedented threat to our global health right now. Mm. And I think it can be, for some people, not only scary, you know, they can really just feel hopeless. Like nothing is ever going to happen. But this too shall pass, hopefully. And if this too doesn't pass, you might as well be hopeful anyway. There are roses that grow out of cracks in the sidewalk. And good things do happen. So stay hopeful. If it happened for others, it can happen for you. Uh, Don't give up on your hope. Don't give up on your faith. Don't give up on your family. Don't give up on your future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Camille. Thank you, Eloise. It's been wonderful speaking with you. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And should you have the need, know there is help out there. Don't give up on your dream of parenthood. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fertility Cafe, we'd love if you would share it with friends and family members who would benefit from this information. We'd also love if you would leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your listening platform of choice. Thank you for joining me today on Fertility Cafe. I'm Eloise Drain. Remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood. Thank you for joining us in the Fertility Cafe. Whether you're an intended parent, a woman considering egg donation, thinking of becoming a surrogate yourself, or a friend or family member of someone dealing with infertility, we're here to help. 
Visit our website, thefertilitycafe.com, for resources on fertility, alternative family building, and making this journey your own.